Welcome everyone. Tonight's discussion, our topic is morality and meaning. So this is a continuation of our discussion that we did on truth, love, and faith. So they're, they're really tied together. We're going to incorporate a lot of the presuppositions, concepts, and things that we addressed in that discussion and just kind of bring them forward. I will touch on them a little bit here um, just to kind of refresh our memories on what that was. Um, and so this particular topic, we will be discussing uh, morality and its manifestations in individuals, culture, nature, and society. The distinctions between an absolute morality and moral relativism Morality's role and relationship with truth, love, and faith, and the significance of spirituality, religion, science, and reason in knowing and embodying morality. So I'm going to start with what I call, I'm going to presuppose, just like we presupposed an absolute truth, I'm going to presuppose an absolute morality. And so let's talk briefly about what we covered in absolute truth. Um, as human beings, we grasp at truth um, and we use various tools, various ways of expression in order to grasp at that truth. Uh, we use our scientific method to grasp at truth. We use uh, logic and reason to grasp at truth. We also use Stories, um, relig all religious traditions are in some way grasping at truth, and especially those that have that those mythological elements of the archetypes. You can see that there's a reason that these stories and these archetypes pervade all elements of cultures around the world and have made their way down for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, because there was something there. There was some that it was grasping at truth. But as I concluded with our last discussion, that truth, the absolute truth, is always something we grasp at because all we have to grasp at it with is our symbolic representations. Our, and that includes our concepts, our ideas, our language. We use words. These are symbols. These are representations of reality, of truth. So they can never truly get truth, that absolute truth. We can get close to truth, and we can get closer and closer to truth. And I use the example of Newton and Einstein and how they had these aha moments where truth, they experienced truth. And that's typically how truth comes to us, is in uh, in, in all cultures, there's a word for this experience of that of that truth. In the Judeo-Christian uh, traditions, we would call it revelation. In, let's say, the Japanese Buddhism, you would have Satori. In Chinese Buddhism, you would have Wu. In Hinduism, you would have Samadhi. So these are all uh, all trying to talk about the same thing, and it's that revelatory experience that we have. Um, even in the shamanic traditions of, uh, of tribal peoples around the world, they use various ritual, some use psychedelics to get to those same 
kind of experiences, those revelatory experiences where you have an experience of truth, but then all we have to express it are our tools, these, these, these symbols, whether it be in words, whether it be in concepts, whether it be in mathematical equations, scientific theories, these are all tools that we use to try to grasp truth. And I find it interesting that we even have a story about Isaac Newton's revelation of truth, which was the apple hits him on the head, right? Because that's how revelation happens. It just hits you. And you just have this aha moment, this experience of a, complete, a, a completely new view of reality. Truth has hit you. And because Isaac Newton had a language that ancient people didn't have, he had mathematics, he had scientific theory, he was able to express his experience of truth in a new language. Whereas people 10,000 years ago have the same experience, all they have to express that experience is stories. And so that's why I see not only you know, scientific theories, mathematical equations, but also religious stories, mythologies. These are all tools that we use to grasp truth, to get us closer to the truth. So in there being an absolute truth, taking that presupposition from our last discussion, I'm now going to posit an absolute morality that exists within this absolute truth. And everything that exists within this absolute truth also has polarity. So if there's an absolute morality, there's an absolute immorality, okay? And if you guys remember in the last discussion on truth, love, and faith, I was, I, <laughs> I was shy a word. I was like, I don't, well, I don't know what word to put here when I was talking about the, that impelling force that goes from truth and, and, and creates that experience and that expression of love as we know it. And I didn't have a word for it. And then it dawned on me this week what that word is. And it's logos. Okay, so logos is a philosophical concept as well as a religious concept. Um, and it exists in all world traditions in some form or fashion, in our culture, we know it as logos. And this term has been used both by Judeo-Christian traditions and by philo philosophers. Um, it goes back in Western philosophy, at least back as far as the Greek philosophers. So this isn't a new concept, but for the purposes of this conversation, the, the philosophical distinction that I'm going to make of logos is it is what makes the known from the unknown. It's what makes content from context. It's what makes chaos into order. So it is this, that is that impelling force that I was talking about on the last discussion, that when it is infused with morality, expresses as love. And if it is infused with some form of immorality, it could express as evil. It could be expressed as 
fear. It could be expressed as anger, hatred, any of these other distinctions that are void of, they're void of love. Okay. So the logos brings, it, it brings our reality into being. Okay. Um, that's why when I say it brings order out of chaos, it's the logos, which interestingly enough, in the English version of the Bible, they translate as the word, right? And we use the word to make distinctions of our reality. This is how we conceive of the reality around us is through words, right? So the logos makes the unknown known. And as the logos, the logos is that impelling force that bring, creates the representation of truth in our reality. So whether it's in the form of a star, a grouping of stars, a galaxy, a planet, a tree, a human being, this is the logos making the unknown into the known. Okay. So the, if there is an absolute morality, then I would say that there, and I talked about this, actually, we're, we're going to skip on this one. So I didn't talk about this in the last discussion, but it's an essential piece because what we're going to do is we're, we're not only speaking into morality as such, but we're also tying this in with that discussion we had on truth, love, and faith. Because I kind of left some open-ended uh, points on that discussion, specifically around love and faith. Because this, is the, this morality piece is what kind of ties all of it together. Okay, So in the absolute morality, I, I, had, I, I proposed that there is a meta-morality. And I, and I would say that this meta-morality, which is the basis for morality is for us conscious beings is individual sovereignty or individual autonomy. <clears throat> and in recognizing that within us, it's also to recognize it in others that from that morality manifests within us as values and principles. And those values and principles all line up with that meta morality of the recognition of the individual and the individual sovereignty or autonomy. So this morality through the logos also manifests in culture, in our society, in nature. Okay. So let's, if we look at culture, morality manifests in culture through various traditions right? Like within our culture, we have this tradition of exchanging pleasantries with people. And depending on what part of the world you live in and what, what the distinct, what's distinct about the culture you're a part of is in some culture, you exchange pleasantries with strangers. You exchange pleasantries with your neighbors. You exchange pleasantries with your family members and things like that. So this is, this is a morality expressing through culture, almost like an ethic of that culture. Um, hospitality is an expression of morality in culture. Um, 
how we, what we perceive is, as the way to treat people in certain circumstances and conditions. This is an expression of morality in culture. So not only does morality express through us in our personal values and principles, but it also expresses through our culture in various ways. And then through society, we would see the, the expression of morality in law. Okay. So in the United States, we're founded, we were founded as a constitutional Republic, which held as the highest value that individual sovereignty, that individual autonomy. So you can see the constitution, which is considered the, the, uh, the basis of our law, right? It is the highest law of the land is the term they give to it. And so that's an expression of that absolute morality and that meta morality into society. So typically in a society, a morality will express itself through law. Okay. And then I, I said, even in nature, that, that morality even expresses itself in nature, in that what we see, remember, it's the logos that all of this moves through. So the logos is what transfers or, or, or conveys truth into the representative, representative reality that we experience. And the morality expresses through nature as what we perceive as beauty, right? It's interesting that beauty can actually, like what we see and experience as beautiful is oftentimes wrapped up with like the phi ratio. So it's, it's like there's even a mathematical premise to what we perceive as beauty. And so I see that as that logos expressing that absolute morality in nature as well. Where are we at so far, Gingy? Um, I'm thinking maybe we could talk about um, the definition of morality, like what it is. Is it a force? Is it a con context? Is it a... I'm having trouble connecting what it is that we're talking about, but your points are making sense, and they're, I can follow them. I just feel like I'm missing a bit of foundation somewhere. Well, it, because it expresses in different ways, in different aspects, like I just illustrated. So in the individual, right, morality is those values and principles that you hold. And it expresses through the individual as virtue. Okay. So for instance, if you hold up the principle, the value of forgiveness, forgiving someone is virtuous. It is in alignment, you are in integrity with your moral values and principles. If you express it, if you express that value or principle as virtue. So it's, it's, that's how it manifests in the individual. Okay. So that's, that would be morality as manifest through the individual. And then again, morality as manifest through a culture would show up as various traditions right? Um, again, some cult, we have a, you know, we, all things considered, 
we ha- we are a part of what we call Western culture. And now these may be, uh, you know, nested. There may be nested cultures, and there may be nested sets of mo- cultural moralities. Um, for instance, we in a lar- we're, we're a part of a larger culture that we that was termed Western Western culture, Western society, right? And it is shared by most of North America, um, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Southern Eastern Europe, uh, parts of the other parts of the Mediterranean outside of Europe. So Western culture is, I mean, and Australia and, you know, <laughs> we could, we could find uh, Western culture as the driving culture behind many, many nations. However, if you live in a small town in Kentucky, that small town in Kentucky has nested within Western civilization its own culture. Okay. And so, uh, for instance, I grew up in Southern California. And in Southern California, there, it's, there's, uh, there's a lot of people. And there's not a lot of pleasantries exchanged with strangers. It's not part of the culture of Southern California, okay? When I was in New Mexico, the northern New Mexico, rural areas of New Mexico, um, and we were doing our 100-mile walk, all of a sudden, all these people waving. Every car that went by would wave. And I'm like, they must think I'm someone else. (laughs) That was my first reaction, like, these people think I'm someone else. They think they know me. Um, not realizing that in that culture of rural northern New Mexico, that was part of the culture, was the exchanging of pleasantries with strangers all the time. You know, And what was interesting as we went along the walk, when we started to get close to Santa Fe, all that waving went away. <laughs> so, so you can see that there's nested elements of culture. And so morality will manifest, it's almost like your small town in Kentucky or your rural area of northern New Mexico or uh, the coastal areas of Southern California, they have their own cultures as well, nested within what we call Western civilization and Western culture. And they each manifest different morality, okay? Does that, does that make sense on the, on the cultural point? I think I'm following. So let me try to, to put it into my own words here. So morality is, is more or less a potential that manifests through different ways. And on the individual level, you talked about it manifesting for an individual person. And uh, societally, you talked about it manifesting for different uh, cultures and societies on the planet. So is, is, is that about right? A uh, little vague. I, I like, and I hate to use words that, <laughs> that derive from it to try to define it, mm-hmm. but rather than you, cause you just put it out there as potential. Well, I would say it's, there's virtue there. It's a virtuous, it's, it's principle, it's values. Okay. And this absolute morality as is, is like a, an absolute positive, we'll say, okay? 
um, a positive way of being, a positive way of acting, a positive way of interacting, a positive way of manifesting the world. A, a, if we look at it like maybe at a more archetypical layer, it would be the, the force of creation as opposed to the forces of destruction, right? It's the, <clears throat> in Hindu traditions, it's uh, Shiva versus Kali, right? Um, actually, Shiva is also destruction. It would be Brahma. <laughs> Brahma versus Kali. So Brahma, the force, the force of creation, that which we we perceive as as good as positive. So there's a virtuous element to morality, you know. And I, and again, because it's we're just like we try to grasp truth, but we can't ever really get there because all we have is our symbolic representations of the world. Well, it's the same with the with the absolute morality. There is no like words that, that, that absolutely define it because it's, it's part of absolute truth. It's, it's, it's something we grasp at. So throughout the ages, we've been grasping at morality, right? Just like we've been grasping at truth. And again, if you look at all the religious traditions, they all have stories and many of them are moral stories where they're showing a, in, uh, a, a situation, typically a moral dilemma, where, because it's easy to talk about your morals and say, we value this, we value this, you know, we value this, we value compassion, we value forgiveness. We, so you can have your values, but what's valuable in, in religious stories and mythological tales is typically they'll, they'll bring up a, a uh, moral dilemma where it's like, now there's a conflict here between your, between your morals and what needs to be done, right? And so it's, it's telling a story of how this situation, when morality or values came, it like contradicted or, or uh, pursuing one value contradicts another or something along those lines right so these are moral dilemmas we have ethical dilemmas so th this is a way that we these stories are are helping us to grasp the deeper nature of morality you know so like, i mean is it um is it something that's like an innate or not or you know i'll say like it's uh yeah it may be innate um, is inherent. That's a better word. Is this something that's an inherent aspect of reality? Is this something that is a cognitive, emotional, human aspect. experience? The, the absolute morality is an aspect of absolute truth. And it manifests in reality through the logos. The logos manifests morality in the individual. It manifests morality in culture it manifests morality in society and it manifests morality in nature. And so what are the other aspects of truth and absolute truth? Morality and... Um, uh, okay, so you want me to take something that we've defined as something we can't define and you want me to define it. I'm looking for the big picture that you're seeing and trying to explain. <laughs> All we can do is grasp the truth, Gingy. And that's all I can do. So that I, I don't know if there's, a, I'm not going to, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to take the position that there's a finite number of aspects of truth. Right now, okay. I'm so speaking just... about a, an aspect of absolute truth, and I'm calling it absolute morality. It's still absolute truth. It's just we're gotcha, taking an gotcha. aspect of truth, and we're showing how the logos brings both morality and immorality. Remember, it's the logos that makes the unknown known. It's the logos that takes brings chaos to order. It's the logos that makes context into content. Okay, so it it's the the manifestation of morality and immorality is through the logos. Okay, so the logos is that impelling force that manifests in the world in all in everything. Okay, um, and with the case of morality in the individual, you know, it manifests as our personal values our principles that we live our life by. And those manifest through us as virtue, right? Our virtuous actions, our virtuous speech, things like that. That's ways that we manifest those values. Gotcha. So this is something that exists pre-physical reality, human experience, and is something that is manifest in physical reality through the logos. Right. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And when, and when it expresses as morality, so when the logos is expressing morality, right, that's love. Okay. So again, this is, this is chiming in with our, our last conversation, our last discussion around truth, love, and faith. So we're, we see now that the, it's this logos when it's manifesting morality, it is it, what it's manifesting is love. And so when we, uh, when the logos comes through us, through our values, through our principles, it, it's where we get our values and principles. And then when we express them in action, that is virtue and that is love in action. Got it. Got it. Okay. All righty. So let's see now. I'm going to bring this around to <clears throat> meaning and purpose and how that ties in with faith as well. So the absolute morality that we express in our values, right? So there's a, there are values and they're not necessarily universal because not everyone is necessarily, uh, I'll use the word tuned in to that to that morality as it comes to you through the logos it may you may be enlightened by it you may have a revelation about your own principles um however there is a great there is a tremendous amount of commonality that we see throughout various uh religious traditions various cultures that we almost see like like common values that seem to be held. And for me, that is a, a testament to the nature of that absolute truth of that absolute morality that all these traditions, all these cultures that have sprung up all around the world and don't necessarily have any connection to each other have throughout the ages come to some kind of a consensus of what's, moral 
right? What's virtuous? Um, like honesty, fairness, equality, um, being caring, compassion, kindness, mercy, um, responsibility, uh, charity, generosity, forgiveness, humility. These are all aspects. These are all values, right? And virtues that, that is that we get from that absolute morality. It's like we were grasping at that absolute morality with those concepts, right? Like we all have a concept of forgiveness. <laughs> and many of us have probably practiced that and put it into action as a, vir as a virtuous act, either in the forgiveness of others or even in asking forgiveness of others is, is, is an embodiment of that absolute morality. So in finding, now I could say at some level that there is, and I don't want to say it's absolute, but it's, there's an underlying purpose and meaning to life that kind of imbues all things. And again, comes to us through as this, the, as a manifestation of this logos, um, for instance, like procreation, right? Um, you know, we may call it instinctual, right? But maintaining your own life and procreating and creating more life is fundamental. It's primal in all things, all living things, um, from trees to human beings. We all have this, the, this fundamental or primal purpose and meaning. But I would say, just like you can have nested moralities or nested systems of morality, you can also have nested meaning and purpose. And what's unique about the human being is that we not only have the capacity to experience meaning and purpose outside of what we consider instinctual, but we even have a power to resist the instinctual. And again, we've, we see that in the expression of morality in culture, okay? So an example of an expression of morality in culture where we have suppressed instinct is the fact that we wear clothing. You know, we cover our junk, we, right? These, our sexual organs, we keep private. Our sexual practices, we keep private, right? Now... You go to the zoo and ain't no animals keeping anything private. All right. There is no, they, there, there is no culture. There is no morality has not, has not manifest as a culture where they're like, Oh, we'll just wait till all the people leave and then we'll start banging. No, they just do it right there in front of you. Right. Dogs, monkeys, whatever they, it to them. It's, it's just following that impulse of instinct where, we have taken that impulse and instinct that we'll call it that primal purpose. And we have created culture out of it, right? Because the logos brings those, that, those primal elements into us. And we, when we take into account that, that 
morality that flows into us, we've created these elements within our culture that you don't see in any other living thing on the planet, right? Where we can actually suppress and hold back those primal, what many call instincts. Now, because of this absolute morality and how it imbues us and how it flows into us and how it expresses through us as love, there's also the opportunity there for us to either, depending on how you see it, invent or discover meaning and purpose for ourselves in our lives. And I would say, in my opinion, this is my assessment, that those who discover or invent purpose for themselves that aligns with their values and principles suffer less in life and are driven. Have, have, there's, there's more driving them in life. There's more passion for life itself. Whereas if you have no clear or distinct meaning or purpose for life, then what drives? And in many cases, I think it may be fear. You know, people get into a mode of survival as opposed to living, right? They're, they're surviving, meaning they're the fear of whether it be death, starvation, rejection, whatever it may be, it's a fear that drives them. So they, they may find some career, but the underlying drive for their career is monetary gain so that they can obtain material possessions because they're, they want to be accepted, they want to be liked, they want to be loved. And so it's a fear-driven, and there's no real substantive purpose or meaning there. And this is now we're starting to tie into faith because faith, as we discussed in our last conversation, was that unyielding trust in that logos and the morality that that logos carries through us and into us and that love and that meaning and purpose that we discover or invent, it is, the, it is an absolute and unyielding trust with, without the promise of any reward, without the promise of any uh, uh, conflict, without the promise of any punishment. Uh, yeah, punishment. I don't know why that word has been so difficult for me to latch onto <laughs> lately. I must be avoiding punishment of some kind. Um, but it's, and without any external authority. Okay, so faith is that unyielding trust that in that meaning, in that purpose that you discover within yourself through the integrity of your morality, right? Your values, your principles with goals in life. And it could be just the manifestation of your values, right? Being virtuous 
for the sake of being virtuous as opposed to being virtuous because I will get some reward or being virtuous because otherwise I may get some kind of a punishment. Right? That Those two scenarios would be a lack of faith. But when I am virtuous for the sake of being virtuous, that is faith. That is being in faith. That is having faith. In the logos, in the truth, in morality, in love. When I trust that and how it moves through me, then I am in faith. And what's interesting, like if you look at a lot of the religious traditions, you know, there's a, a correlation with faith and a lack of fear, right? If I have faith, I have no fear. And in the, and there also being an underlying purpose with that faith. So here I, here I am, Jinji. Now I'm trying to tie this together with with that last element that we discussed in our last discussion, um, are you, you follow that? Is that, is that clicking? Uh, I follow not as much clicking as usual when okay. I follow. Okay. Well, what, where, what, tell me what, tell me what I told you, not word for <laughs> word, but tell me your understanding of what I, of what I'm saying. Um, well, I mean, here's the lack of clicking. You're going to get to see it. <clears throat> so basically what I'm hearing is that there is, um, truth, absolute truth. That's the presupposition we're starting with. And aspects of that morals. And I, I think even faith you're saying is an aspect of truth, or at least faith in the truth um and how yeah, those faith, yeah faith is, not, faith is not an aspect of truth but it is a faith in truth so the yeah, the aspect sense. the aspect of absolute truth was the was absolute morality that is an aspect of absolute truth that's the only aspect of truth um and then the manifestation of that through the logos, right? The logos is what manifests reality. It's what makes the unknown known. It's what makes content out of context. It's what makes order out of chaos. It brings the universe into being, right? And so it manifests the truth all around us. That's what it's constantly doing. We ourselves are an expression of that truth. The Logos is expressing us in this moment as an aspect of that absolute truth, okay? And then love, which was when the Logos is manifesting that what we called absolute morality shows up in us as our values and principles, which we if we act upon and are in integrity with, we are virtuous. We act virtuous. We speak virtuously. With regards to faith, 
And also it's where meaning and where we can discover or invent meaning, right? When we, when we are clear on what those values are and, and what virtue is for us, we, we can now find meaning or invent meaning or purpose for our life through that morality, through, that, through those virtues that come through us. And faith is an unyielding trust in the logos, uh, the, the morality manifests through the logos in us, in culture, in society, right? In nature, right? So it's this what unyielding immorality. Trust. Right. That's part of it because the logos brings them both together. So not only does the logos manifest morality, but it manifests immorality. And so nature, you're having a, a faith in just morality or both morality and immorality? Your, your faith is in the meaning and purpose that you, that you create or discover with regards to your morality. Now, you can, you can have a purpose that is grounded in immorality. Don't get me wrong. Um, but because that is going to be based in fear, it's not faith. Remember, when there's faith, there's no fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is this really, is this looking at the inner workings of our experience and of nature? Or is this looking at a way for us to create and intentionally, you know, participate in what drives us and uh, a, a compass, a moral compass, if you will. And, and, you know, our, it's, our ability it's, to choose it's faith. Both, it's, it's both. And it's always been there. Okay. It's always been there. It's why humanity shares all these stories. It's why we share these various values and principles. It's always been there. It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of the nature of reality itself. And so it's always been there. Having these distinctions as we're discussing now can make you intentional. Like for instance, in discovering or inventing purpose and meaning for yourself in your life. Um, Or like just getting clarity on your values. What are your values? What are your principles? And not just as concepts, because if all you have are concepts of values and you're not embodying these principles and these values, well, then you're not being virtuous. You're thinking about virtuous things. That's not the same. So it's about when we, ha- when we have clarity on the nature of truth, the nature of morality, the nature of love, the nature of the logos, the nature of faith. We could be very clear and intentional about manifesting and embodying our values and principles and, and recognizing, for instance, that if we are experiencing depression, anxiety, fear, that we are lacking faith.
That's awesome. So it's a way to make sense of and understand the experiences we're having, the forces at play, and effectively right. navigate. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 uh, it, it's empowering, right? It's a way of empowering ourselves with the nature of reality. So, what's it look like for somebody to to fully embody faith, trust, love, morality? all these things. I mean, I, I mean, I kind of can extrapolate a little bit from what we just talked about. Like you just went into um, depression or even, you know, being in a funk, having a bad right. day at work or something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, like we, I just had an argument with my girlfriend over the weekend and I'm like, huh, I was not in faith at all during that argument. No, I was in my right. shit about it. Right. And so I'm like, it does add a little bit of context, a little bit of um, trust, a little mm -hmm. bit of clarity and, um, you know, joy to the situation, or at least right. like relaxation and, and um, surrender, if you will. Right. Yeah. Because this too, this too shall pass. Um, so it's, and, and again, not that this is an all-encompassing, you know, uh, method or anything. Um, like, for instance, in personal relationship, you do have what we call trust. And there's authentic trust and there's blind trust. And that's an important aspect of personal relationships. Um, and th and that's, that can be considered in the area of not only principle, but method as well. And we, and, and again, really, I guess if we look at all of our values and our principles that we can derive methodology in their application and embodiment. Um, and we actually, we do this again at all levels, not only the level of the individual, we do this at the level of culture. We do this at the level of society. Um, like for instance, there are effective tools for ethics, right? I don't know if you're familiar with the work of uh, Stefan Molyneux. He has what he calls UPB, which is a universally preferable behavior, which is, it's basically an <laughs> ethical, it's an ethical tool, right? Yeah. And so it's a, it's a logical and reasonable, rational way of applying ethics, right? So this is a, this is an interpersonal tool. This is, can be considered a cultural or societal tool, um, but it presupposes, you know, it, it, you, there, there's the presupposition that there is morality, you know, because, because for one, right in the name, the universally preferable, well, then it must presuppose that what should be preferable, like what should be preferable is living. <laughs> you know, like people should prefer to live to, than to die. Right. So there are some presuppositions that go with it. But when you take into account those presuppositions and when there is an underlying morality, it becomes a very effective ethical tool. Make sense? Yep. Now, of course, I'm not going to go into the details of his method, but and you and any of you who are interested, you should. It is a it's a it's a, an effective tool for the application of ethics, you know, for a, a, a very objective approach to the application of ethics. So, and, and if we take any other 
value or principle that we may have. We may be able to derive some way of affecting within our lives, embodying it within ourselves. Um, like, uh, you know, you and I were having a conversation earlier and I, you know, I really feel for people who lack like some substantive meaning or purpose for themselves in their lives. Um, because I can see, and this may be why we have this epidemic, really it's a pandemic of, of anxiety and depression. You know, it's w- w- why, why so much anxiety? Why so much depression? Is it maybe because of a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose and a lack of faith that pervades society at such an extraordinary level that it it is at the level of pandemic where a lot more people experience these things than not. Right. Now you did say something a few minutes ago that really piqued my interest. You were talking about morality and uh, you had forget exactly how you brought it up, but you basically said, if you don't have morals or um, faith or something to that drives you, the purpose in life, then what is it that drives you? And having right. purpose, having this grander vision in life, to me, I'm like, I've always been striving for something like that if whether it had been music or you know degree or relationship or whatever and now i'm on more of like a legacy kick like what do i leave behind when i die but what i mean there's there's a reason why these self-improvement gurus are making you know buku guru bucks all year every year teaching people how to find their passion, you know, passion planners and projects and stuff out the wazoo. And I I can't almost at all fathom what it would be like to just go to work, you know, blow off steam on the weekends and not have any clue why I'm doing any of it besides make money, buy a house, move to Florida and die. Right. Kids and all that stuff like the standard American life plan. But what is it that drives people if there is no grounding in morality? They don't have a life purpose identified. Or they're not working with one, at least anyway. They might have one unconsciously. But what does drive people if that's absent? I, I can't even imagine what it would be. Just pure influence of the external environment? Uh, it could be partly that that uh, if you're if you're not paying attention, you don't know. You know? <laughs> if uh, right, you're right. literally floating on the breeze, right? You just react to the environment. You know, you're just uh, you're in the drift. You're, yeah, you're in the drift. You're just reacting to the environment and every day. Um, yeah, what drives you? Most likely, in a lot of circumstances, it's fear. Right. So, and I'm not going to say it's absolute and that's what it always is, but, um, fear is a, it's a, it's pretty strong motivator. (laughs) You know, why do I go to work every day? Well, because I don't want to be on the streets. I 
you know, I'm, I, I'm afraid of being homeless. I'm afraid of, you know, uh, not being able to provide for my family. I'm afraid of, uh, moving not, back in with my parents. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it is. I'm afraid of people perceiving me as a failure. Right. And that's the, and now we're actually getting into the biggest fears, right? That, that yeah, fear yeah. of what others think of me, right? That Judgment. fear of not being accepted, that fear of not being liked. Um, those are some of the strongest motivators of all because, and, and, and I've seen people who actually have what I'll call a, a positive disposition in life. They may not have a deeper meaning or purpose that they're aware of, that they're conscious of, um, but they relish in, let's say their personal relationships. So they live for what drives them is what we're doing after work. What drives them is what we're doing this weekend. What drives them is the new car that they're working towards. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, it may not be substantive in a spiritual sense, but it's, it's, it's task oriented. <laughs> like they, yeah, they find something. Yeah. Yeah. They find something to focus on in the moment. And then the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. Um, so it, and if they're, and if they're socially intelligent, meaning they have a high level of social skills, they have a high level of openness, a high level of agreeableness, like they could probably get along pretty good without having any real deeper meaning or deeper, deeper purpose. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't say that's what's driving them. I'm, <laughs> I would say that's more like being on autopilot, that, that it's your your unconscious desires and because of the way you've set your life up to be, you kind of move from one relatively enjoyable experience to another. Right. Um, but the, the question you have to ask yourself of those people is, well, what happens when shit goes bad? Right. What happens when you lose your friends? What happens when you get fired from your job? What happened, you know, that, so that now there's these, these elements that because they've been, because they don't have that deeper meaning, that deeper purpose or that faith, when they face the dark night of the soul, which we all do, and we all will at some point, many times in our lives, um, what do they have to sustain themselves with? What are they going to have that's going to bring them out of it? What are they going to have to, you know, to grasp onto? You know, what's going to support them through that? You know, if, if you know, you face a dark night of the soul and there's no deeper meaning or substantive purpose for you in your life, you know, this may be when even the people who seem happy-go-lucky commit suicide, right? You know, there's always some surprise suicide. They're like, what? Like that person? That person didn't seem depressed. That person didn't seem, you know, to be anxious or, you know, whatever it is. However, you know, they had been living a shallow, insubstantive life with little to no meaning or purpose. And that allowed, the, so when they faced, you know, the darkness, the shadow, the dark night of the soul, they fell apart. <laughs> and didn't have anything substantive to grasp in order to pull themselves back together. Right? They didn't. They didn't have that uh, life raft. They didn't have that 
uh, what are they? What are those things they throw out of the boats? <laughs> life preserver. <laughs> the preserve, yeah, the life preserver. They didn't have the. They didn't have the. You know, they didn't have anything. They didn't have anything to to grasp onto and pull themselves back together. And so, I'm realizing some people, it takes them half their life to realize. You know, <laughs> like my mom, for instance. I don't know if she actually went through this this type of thing, but um, I distinctly remember since I'm the oldest when I moved out of the house. Um, it was no big deal. You know, it was like, oh my God, my baby, my oldest, she's moving. But then, you know, as my younger siblings left, it became a bigger deal. And when the last one left, you know, she came down with what's, you know, I think termed as like the empty nest syndrome or something, where she had wrapped up so much of her purpose in being a mother and raising kids that when that wasn't what she was doing, all day, every day. It was like she she kept finding other ways and reasons to mother, and right, and and even that it was difficult. So I could only imagine, like well, your and, purpose and in that, life is this big thing that ends, you know, twenty years, thirty years in. Well, and that's the thing because uh, uh, this is the importance uh, of this discussion of being mindful of and intentional about that meaning and purpose. Because that is, for, for parents, that becomes purpose and meaning for a long time. And not that it ever goes away. It changes. You know, when all of your kids are adults, it's not the same, right? It's now, it's different. And, but you still have to find some substantive purpose because now they're adults and they have their own purpose, their own meaning and everything else. So your role has changed with them. So in being intentional about, you know, what got you that far, you know, and if you allowed your morality, you know, and your values and principles to guide you as a parent and manifest through you in your parenting, um, well, now you can take that, that connection you have to those values and principles and find a deeper meaning, another meaning, um, or additional purpose. You know what I mean? Um, it's it's a it's it's an opportunity like to to have new meaning to have new purpose all right so what do you think nick any of that land yeah any of that, I, uh, any of that click maybe i missed it did you define logos as a word um i did i well I, like like it like is, it's I, root like what it actually means as a as a word just straight up well it has a plethora of meaning and I took and associated it with phrases that kind of encompass all those various words that it's been translated as. Okay. So like I said, like it's making the unknown known it's making the, uh, chaos into order. It's making it's the, it's manifesting truth into reality. Um, they're literally, I think, maybe over, well over a dozen translations of it. Right. Um, so it's, it's like in the, in the new Testament, I believe they translate it as the word. Yeah. Right. John one, one. Yeah. 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 It was, I mean, the, the directly from Greek, like commonly used as a Greek word, it, it's just the word or spoken word. And the, the Romans took that and they, it's the same thing. It's word or, I say, right? It's something you bring forth by speaking. 
that's been just the basic, I mean, the, at the, at the most fundamental basic, uh, meaning of it. Yeah. yeah and like, and there's all kinds of philosophical concepts that oh, are yeah, yeah. Absolutely. raised around it. And even, and even in its religious context, you know, yeah. you, you're not going to take that as a, a literal, you know, as word, <laughs> you know, the, right, the right, word, right. word, right. Mm -hmm. It's, there's definitely a deeper meaning there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, what I did was I kind of took an amount, I took all the words that it's been translated as and all the uses and philosophy and kind of came up with a way of expressing it that encompasses all of those mm. in the way that that's how I saw it, that like that, that covers all the bases, so to speak, because even the, even the literal translation of word or speech and things like that, that it's been translated as those, that is making the unknown known, right? That mm -hmm. is, Exactly. What, yeah. Going into chaos and making order, right? Is, right. is through concept through words and things like that. So, right. Right. Yeah. I think Jordan Peterson, not that I'm a, yeah, he, uh, he talks about that briefly. I, I forget which, which speech it was in, but he, and you know how, how he can go on for a while. Right. Uh, he, uh, but he talks about that, how it's not, it's more than just calling it, the word you know it's it's speaking something into reality it's it's the it's the power of 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 speaking truth and right i really like that i thought that was pretty pretty interesting for jordan peterson the christian who isn't a christian uh, <laughs> <laughs> seems like to me but um i'm not knocking the guy i just um he he uh he talked about it as being because because spoken speaking something and not even speaking but but thinking in in terms of of granularity in the form of words differentiates things and distinction is the worst enemy of implication right so people can imply <laughs> but you start making distinctions they get real uncomfortable and that's I think that's um, I think that's the beauty of it yeah you can say oh it's just, just word you know but like you said, it's better to to be a little more expansive in that it's yeah. it's more about. I mean, in the and I'm Bible, I just think is apropos here. Um, uh, God spoke the the world into existence. I mean, that's that's the the biblical version of that, and in in that way, speaking something into existence. And it's not just it's not just not just the Christian tradition. I mean. Even even now we're considering that we're you know reality as we know it is a is a simulation or a, or a thought form of something greater that we're part of a greater creature that we can't fathom. But speaking something into existence is powerful. I mean, there's a reason it's called spelling, right? Uh, speaking something into existence and making distinctions is what it's incredibly powerful. It's it's what makes life. I mean, it makes it uh, or shouldn't say makes life, but it. Well, it's it is the nature of. Uh, again, we we've been talking about you know when we had our conversation about truth, right? right. We grasp at truth, and right. how do we grasp at truth? With words, right. <laughs> you know? exactly. like and, and and I mean it goes beyond that because we even have mathematics, right? Mathematics right. is a way we grasp at truth. 
Um, we have scientific theories. So we've we've taken the word and ex we've expressed it in so many advanced ways, but it's the word is a representation. It is symbolic. And that's right. why I made that association with the logos manifesting or creating a representation of the truth right. in reality, right? right. So, so even the world as we see it isn't necessarily the truth. It is right. a representation of the truth at, as per the logos. The logos right. has brought truth into the world in symbols, right? Right. I think it's interesting that, and, and that's, I mean, we can get closer and closer through the logos, but it's not until we experience experience it. And my understanding is that's called gnosis, experiential truth, not my truth. That's not to be mistaken of quote unquote my truth, but right. uh, the actual experience, the dawning on of, of something, the, the 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 gnosis, the aha moment. There's right. a there there's an experience of truth, and you're like, okay, so I've described it, and I've I've striven toward it all my life, and then I experience it, and now I can't. Logos that I can't say the words that would come com, that would uh, that would um, uh, adequately express right. Yeah, that would, that would yeah that would really it could convey the experience. You know? Right. So, exactly. You know. So there 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 is that that paradox that right. all you're ever doing is experiencing truth. Right. <laughs> right. It's all around you all the time. You're an expression of it. And everything around you is an expression of it. However, <laughs> all you have to contemplate it, to speak about it, are representations, are right. symbols, you know, words and concepts. And so this is because that's just, that's why I say we're grasping at it because we use words and we use concepts and we use ideas and we use mathematical formulas and scientific theories and right. stories. Like I, I, I really one of the most important things that I wanted to convey in these last two discussions was the significance and the importance of stories mm -hmm. in grasping that truth as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, it's funny because, you know, you've seen me do analysis on movies and books and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think it's necessarily the intention of the authors. Most of the time it's just, they're telling a story and they can't help, but <laughs> you know, circumscribe the truth, you know, they, right. they the, right. the archetypes, whether they're intentional about it or not show up in their material. Yeah. It comes out, yeah. it comes out through the, what, what is it? The Jungian, uh, or, uh, yeah, the Jungian, uh, collective subconscious can subconscious of everybody. Is it young or was it? Was you, it young? Yeah. 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 Okay. Sorry. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. So you get closer to truth, right? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, yeah, it's. I think I, I think I do think people are compelled to. I think I think a lot of a lot of the stuff happening now is people are they're trying to deconstruct these archetypes and they're having a hard time because it goes against their very nature. <laughs> the thing that, right. that I mean, if nothing else, we've spent you know if you if you want to go straight materialist, we've spent millions millions of years. I mean, man man as we know it, the, the species as we know it is at least a quarter million years old, and in that right. time we've been through God knows how many. Uh, how many mass extinctions, how many cataclysms and tropes and archetypes exist because that was us tell telling the story to one another around a fire and eventually around whatever high technology developed before we came along, uh, telling the story of how to survive. 
over and over right. again in a way that was right. Uh, we're, we're telling, we're tell, yeah, because it, underneath our stories is the the is human nature is right. fundamental truth is you right. know so these these stories are as many stories as we express and what you what you have to appreciate is that some stories are told worldwide oh, some yeah. stories have been being told for thousands if not tens of thousands of years yep. um and yep. so i almost see as like if a story has made it 10,000 years, <laughs> that may be a story worth looking at. There may be some, right. there may be some significant truths hidden in that story. Right. That, right. And like I said, the, you know, when I drew the example of Isaac Newton, you know, he had his aha moment, but in his aha moment, he understood advanced mathematics. <laughs> he understood scientific right. theories. So he could tell a different kind of a story. That right. hadn't been told before, but that realization, that aha that he had, has been had many times in mm -hmm. the past. It's just, you know, if you don't have a language of mathematics or a language of scientific theory, you're the only, all you can do is try to tell a story to convey what you experienced in that aha moment, that truth, that moment of truth that you experience can only be expressed in a story, you know, right. and, 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 and again, you're still just grasping, but so is science. Like we're grasping at truth with science. We're grasping mm -hmm. at truth with mathematics, mm -hmm. you know? Well, that's, so that's it's, the fun of it. Yeah. Right? That's, that's, that's literally, that's why people go into those professions, you know, before they were co-opted. It, it, that's the fun of it. That the 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 fun of the question mark, the very the the concept of unknowingness itself, the the void, the 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 what if, and being there and being present and feeling that excitement of not knowing, and then seeking to know, seeking to learn, seeking to build, I think I think a lot of that's gone by the wayside. You know, <laughs> to the point that like you said this uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe it was last week. Um, science isn't, I mean, it's become an institution, which is bad enough, but it, it's more about um, complying with a narrative rather than not necessarily deconstructing it, but being open to new theories, you know, don't put right. maybe out with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, and it's restricted by a worldview. So not only is it institutional for the most part, yes, there are still probably a handful of sci real scientists out there. And there right. are still some people that actually employ the scientific method. Um, but there's also the restriction of a worldview that underlines most of scientific people, which is that mechanistic materialism, which has now reached a point of diminishing returns where there is so much more for science to explore that mm -hmm. it won't <laughs> because it's attached to the idea that the universe itself is just a machine that we are just machines you know we're just meat machines yeah. and because of that limited worldview science has now reached this point of diminishing returns so it's like wow we could be learning so much about psychic phenomenon right and yet we won't go there because it doesn't fit with that worldview right Not that it's because there are people who are using the scientific method to show that there are anomalies 
<laughs> within mm -hmm. our current worldview. Like if, if enough anomalies show up in your worldview or in your scientific theories, you have to rethink the theories and the right. worldview. You know, right. like this worldview does not account for this, let's say this psychic phenomenon over here that we've now tested and explored and we've done studies and like we have, we have come to the point where it is clear that some, like something ain't jiving, right? Like right. this doesn't work with the worldview. This doesn't work with some of these accepted, you know, standards, right? right. And which is funny because they use terms now in the media like uh, settled science. Like anyone who knows what science is knows that th that's an oxymoron. That yeah, is a contradiction yeah. of terms. Science is never settled. Was the hey, hey Brandon? Was the science settled by sovereign citizens? I mean, that's really what you got to ask people because that's a that's <laughs> serious. Well, well, more well, I, I, I think I, I don't I think, think you're being the, serious, Nick. I, I think well, the most, <laughs> I'm being. I think the most, I'm not being. I am being serious because sovereign citizen is an oxymoron, just like settled science. So I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous. Like if somebody says it's it's settled science and they get uppity, you can say, well, that's that's as stupid as saying sovereign citizen. Like you can't. The two can't. The, the, come on, it's it's ridiculous. Like, either you're sorry, you're just, either, you gotta you yeah. gotta realize who are they saying it for? Well, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they're yeah. saying it for people who don't know what science is. <laughs> as far as they're concerned, science is an institution. That right, right. science is written in stone. You know, like I mean, we had the arrogance to call uh, Isaac Newton's theories laws. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, with the law of gravity, and then Einstein comes around like, oh wait, maybe we didn't know as much about that law as we thought. <laughs> right, right. You know, so it's it's clearly science is never settled. You know, as right. much as as we may think it is, it's never settled. That's not even science does not settle. <laughs> it's, it's on its purpose. It's right. the purpose of science is to is to get us closer to the truth, you know? Right. Um, science itself will never establish truth as such, right? So it's, it's yeah, it's interesting. Hey, Ginger, you got anything else to, to close up for morality before we go into another discussion here? He's back. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I didn't think it was gonna work. Uh, yeah, my headset died. And apparently that means that my computer glitches and doesn't know how to figure it out. Um, yep. That's what you get for having a Mac. <laughs> hey. Uh, it's brand hey. new. So the only other thing that I was I was going into there, and I don't know if we want to continue the conversation there or just wrap it up, um, but we were talking about purpose and and how it's not a stagnant thing. It's not like... My purpose in life is to make people laugh, and that will be my only purpose from the day I'm born to the day I die. It's right. a dynamic thing that comes and goes and shifts depending on what's going on. And I can think of probably you know, a handful of purposes that have guided me and, and driven me throughout my life. And some of them have been interpersonal, and some of them have been career, and some of them have been monetary. Some of them have just been passion projects. Um, and some of them have been theories, you know, trying to prove something. And so 
Uh, I, I don't know where to take the conversation from there now that we've digressed a bunch, but that's what basically well, what I was Yeah, I mean, again, we're 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 on the outskirts of morality still. <laughs> so, so that's why I wanted to bring it back to that and see if there was anything to further this conversation before we tie it up and move on to something else. Um, yes, that's how I see it, is it's dynamic, that purpose and meaning shift. For one, you are transforming from moment to moment, right? Your experiences transform you. So from moment to moment, you are changing and you may discover something about yourself. You may have one of those aha moments. You may have one of those revelatory moments where you experience truth. You understand the nature of reality for a split second and it completely shifts your purpose and meaning, you know, in life. So it's, it is something that's dynamic. It is something that can change. Right. And then it's just about, uh, reconciling it with your morality and your, or your values and principles and then having that faith in it, right? Having faith not only in your moral or your, your values and your principles, but in that purpose and meaning. And in that truth, right? So that, that's sort of the, the faith kind of ties all of it together. It ties your purpose and meaning in with your uh, eth uh, values and principles, which is manifestation of morality, which is an aspect of absolute truth. So faith kind of ties all of that together. That's and so I, I guess in wrapping it up, I'd like to just talk a little bit about um, how we could apply this day to day, how we can practice it, what the benefits of practicing it might be, um, even if it's just noticing. Well, yeah, we talked about being intentional with it for sure. Um, and I would say that there's definitely, there are definitely practices you can incorporate to Again, tools, right? That's all we have is tools to get us closer to the truth. Um, so tools that we have at our disposal that may quiet the chatter of the mind and allow us to experience truth without interpretation. And we discussed this in the last discussion as well. Um, so I won't go into it too deeply, but there's that. There is in, in meditation, let's say, right? When you are able to elevate consciousness outside of interpretation when you're able to let the world just happen all around you and not interpret sounds or feelings or tastes or touch or uh, visual sensations when you're able to just have that all happening around you without any interpretation happening that is as coherent and as close to truth as you can get without actually having one of those revelatory moments, which can happen at any time, evidently. You know, there, it doesn't seem like there's a, like you can have a revelatory experience in meditation and many do. And that's why it is so widely practiced within many religious traditions is because it can, it, it can make it easier or can, can facilitate having that kind of an experience, a revelatory experience 
a Satori, a Wu, a Samadhi, you know, that, that, that exposure, that, that experience of truth, right. That leads to deeper understanding, um, that leads to, uh, uh, interest, deep introspection of self. So there's, as far as the morality aspect of that, I would say that that's definitely intentional as well as intuitive in that, like becoming clear on your values, you know, and what aligns with your values and what does not align with your values, both in your own actions and thoughts, but also in the world around you. Because you may value something and you may hold a principle that is violated on a day-to-day basis within your culture, within your society. And so it's, it's important to recognize those as well because we will have those moments when we have moral or ethical dilemmas, you know, when there's a, a contradiction And this is why it's so hard to completely use an objective tool when it comes to morality, you know, because there are circumstances, conditions, events occur where your values can contradict what needs to be done, can contradict each other. And so there's this, this judgment, right? This discerning that must occur. And it's so it's in the practice of being deep, thinking deeply and meditating on your values and your principles and how they manifest. And then also being introspective and reflecting on your integrity with those values, right? Are, am I embodying these principles? Are they, do they play out, you know, in my day-to-day life? You know, you feel when you're, Well, I should say, if you're aware, if you're awake, if you're conscious, you feel when you're out of integrity with your values, you know, it the minute it happens, you know, like you can have a very similar set of events and have completely different experiences based on subtle differences. And what, what do I mean by that? So let's say you get confronted by someone in a workplace and this person is berating you or speaking down to you or something like that. And you say something and you stand for yourself. You, 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 and this comes out of that, that value of self-worth, right. And respect for yourself. And, and so you speak up for yourself. You, you stop this person from saying what they're saying. And depending on how you do that, you're either going to feel good about it or you're going to feel crappy about it. And that's in, in standing up for yourself in speaking out for yourself in rebutting or refuting what this person is saying. How did you go about it? And is the way you went about it in alignment with your values? You know, so if you just, you know, start cursing at the person or throw them under the bus for something personal they told you one time, or, you know, like if you start deflecting in a way and start shaming them as opposed to just standing up for yourself and not accepting what they're saying about you, like there's in this scenario, 
there's a way to go about this that's going to align with your values and may contradict one of your values because you may have one of your values may be kindness. And in this moment, you're not going to be kind to this person. However, in this moment, there are other values that supersede kindness. Okay. And so the, the best tell on that is what did you feel after? Did you feel good about it? He's like, you know, in a positive way, you know, because in shaming or guilting someone else, you're not necessarily going to feel good about yourself. Are you still there? Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, makes me think about what could be the potential upsides of this. Like, what is it? Obviously, it's going to feel great. <laughs> but what what is what's life like when you are in integrity with your values when you interrupt somebody's berating and you do it and you're in integrity with your values and you feel really good about it afterwards but what's it like to live life from there obviously you know for me there would be a strength in that a confidence in that a calm and relaxation in that and uh, more more consistency in experience that I, I often seek. You know, I don't like the extreme highs and the extreme lows. I seek the moderate highs and the moderate lows. You know, something more consistent, balance. or at least a lot more, yeah, um, harmonious balance. Yeah. Um, what what are some of your thoughts on that? What are what are some benefits that come from practices like not not like this is like what is the product of this type of approach, but what, what's a possibility or what are possibilities? Well, I think you just answered that question to quite an extent. I can, I guess I can, might be able to find some more to throw in there. Um, but what I would say um, that's significant for me is not only is being in integrity with your values and principles. Not only is it like, you know, doing everything you said, which is, you know, you, you, you feel confident, you, you experience, uh, you know, you have a high, higher level of self-worth you have, um, you, you don't fear, right. You, you experience more, uh, love and joy and happiness. Not that you won't experience those other things because you will. You will experience fear. You will experience depression. You will experience anxiety. But like you said, uh, in, in being intentional and being in alignment, being intentional about your integrity with those principles um, can, can bring that, that experience, as you explained, as the, the balance, right, in uh, to where even when you face something uh, depressing or something that you know makes you angry or whatever it is, you have this this point that you come back to, right? It's where where do you where do where's your resting you know uh, your resting consciousness at? Meaning when I'm not being intentional about my experience, where do I rest at? Do I, some people rest in anxiety. They're always 
thinking about and afraid of things coming in the future. Some people are in depression. They're always thinking about and brooding on the past, right? Um, so there, if, if you are intentional about being in integrity with embodying these principles, where what's possible for your resting consciousness? Like, where would you be coming back to? You know, so yes, I can experience anxiety. Yes, I can experience depression. Yes, I can experience anger. I can experience joy. I can experience happiness. I can experience all these different things. But where do I come back to? Where's my, when I'm not being intentional and no, st no stimulating events are occurring, where do I come back to? And, I, and for me, what I experience is when I embody my principles and I act them out, it actually it feels like it pays such extraordinary dividends <laughs> that it, it can like, it, it, it's almost as if it requires very little effort to, to actually maintain a very positive mm -hmm. way of seeing things. Um, now, again, I can go to anger. I can go to frustration. I can go to sadness. I can go all those places, but it's very easy for me to come back to that feeling pretty awesome about everything, you know, and like life is good and having this humor about me that I can bring up at just about any time, you know, when I'm in that resting place, like I would say that's almost my automatic reaction to stimulus in my environment, except for spiders <laughs> is, is humor. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just, it's an automatic, like, uh, I, I, I find the humor in life. I find the beauty in life. Um, and, and so it's not even like, I don't have to be consciously thinking about my values or my principles. I automatically go to humor. I automatically go to beauty. I automatically go to appreciation. If that makes any sense. It's, and I guess, I don't know if this is because of practices that I've had for years um, because I know it wasn't always that way. Um, I know when I was much younger, there was definitely a tendency to stay in to, to the place I came back to was a place of, I guess I could say general anxiety, like just a not feeling uh, like just not feeling like I along in my body almost, you know what I mean? Or like, like, yeah. like I was being rejected by my body. <laughs> like, like, like something ain't working here. Like a, a, a general dis-ease, right? Like just not feeling, I think the, the phrase is feeling comfortable in your own skin. Is that a phrase? Is that a thing? That's um, a thing. Seems like a, okay, that's a thing. Uh, then yeah, it's something like that. You know, that was my, kind of my, my, automatic like when like again when all environmental stimulus are gone where do you come back to that's where i used to come back to it was just this general sense of anxiety not feeling at home in my body um not feeling you know feeling dis-ease um but again it's yeah it's been a long time since i've experienced that i would say probably that started to change for me probably in my late 20s, early 30s. 
to where it just, it wasn't my, it wasn't where I came back to anymore. You know, it just wasn't, you know, I, I'm still all over the map. (laughs) I still experience everything, but my, where I come back to is a pretty awesome place, you know, and I, there's gotta be a word for that, right? There's got to be a, a word, word for, for that space because I've always called it neutral. Like, oh, this is my neutral, meaning I'm right. not I'm not forward, I'm not backwards, I'm not up or I'm down, I'm in the middle. And I know in some of my mom's work in South Dakota, um, the on the Sioux Reservation, they have a phrase called the beauty way. And it's like you're not pushing too hard, you're not you know, slacking off, you're not going in, it in, the, in the wrong direction, you're, you're just coasting, basically. Um, it's like that sweet spot, mm-hmm. but I can't think of a word that it would actually be neutral works for me, but yeah, but neutral doesn't work for me just because neutral implies like if you're at the, at the spot you come back to is anxiety. I wouldn't classify that as neutral, <laughs> but so, so it's, and I'm not sure if you're talking about the place you come back to or that ex- because when you say the beauty way or the that's way of the I mean. beauty or whatever it is, that's, that's experiential. So that's like, that's a certain, that's a place, that's a place you come back to. Right. Um, so, but I wouldn't call that place a neutral place. Um, well, no, no, not have- neutral. Like in, think about it, a car, you've got first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, mm. fifth gear, reverse, all those different gears, but in neutral, you're not in any of those gears. So you could use that analogy like I'm in the anger gear, I'm in the depression gear, I'm in the joy gear. Coming back to neutral is just like Yeah, but you do, that's what I'm saying. Zero. Most people don't come back to neutral. They come back to anxiety. They come back to depression. They you know what I mean? Right. So, so they're stuck in the depression gear. Yeah, I, stuck but I'm looking there. for the yeah, I'm looking for the word of that place you come back to. Right, <laughs> Regardless right. of that's what, what I'm it looking feels to. Like. Yeah. If it feels like shit. Okay. <laughs> if it feels awesome. Okay. But what do we call that? You know, and I want to call it like your bass plane frequency. <laughs> it's like, yeah. like that. Your homeostasis. Yeah. Something like there's, a, I'm sure there's a phrase or a word for it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll figure it out before the next call, but um, yeah, but there's, yeah, there's a, there's a, it's where we in our current way of being, where, where we, we have rest. a tendency to come back to, yeah, where we, where our resting consciousness has us at when there is no stimulus outside of us. Because you can, you know, with stimulus, you can have things that, you know, evoke happiness, that evoke anger, that you know, and so you, if you're, you know, constantly surrounded by stimulus, you may be just kind of riding the wave, and these these stimulus are evoking things within you, um, or even thoughts, because you can even think about something and like. You know, if it's uh, if it's uh, nostalgic, you may you know have a an experience of joy or happiness or you know uh, love or something, and and maybe you think about something that you know makes you angry, you know makes you uh, super duper pissed. But it's it's that's an event, that's a stimulus, the thought itself. And so it's okay without the thoughts, without the external events, where are you at? Now, the, something that came up for me while I was listening to you talk about the significance or the importance for you of being in that, um, in that trust and being grounded in your 
your truth, your values, your principles. I realized if if you're grounded in purpose, if you're grounded in your own principles and values, for me, probably the biggest significance is standing for something in the world. And and more accurately, I'll say making a difference. And that's something that I've heard more and more, especially in these younger generations. They want to change the world. It's all about change management systems and it's about disruptive organizations and technologies. And I'm like, man, there's a lot of people that want to change the world. <laughs> like how much change can this thing, you know, take? Like if every single person is molding it in their own way, I mean, it's not like they're not already doing that, but you get what I'm trying to say. The, if, if I was truly wanting to feel like I'm impacting the world and making a difference by standing in the values and principles that I hold and not deviating from that, meaning I practice it daily, it, it gets stronger and stronger, and I'm not thrown out of those principles by any stimulus from the environment, any conversation with somebody, any big event, and that becomes my resting place, my neutral, my, my zero, whatever it is, then... I'm really paving a way for people to fall in line. I'm, I'm creating the invitation for everybody I engage with and rub off on to play in that same type of field. It's like Gandhi's the, the whole be the change you want to see. By being that, you become the inspiration and the permission for other people. Right. I'd say the biggest problem you have, and first, I'm going to take you all the way back. You said your truth. Say it again, Gingy. Say it I again. Did. I did. Yes, not. you did. Uh, I will rewind this right now and play it back. To you. <laughs> there is no your truth, Gingy. There is the truth. There is no your truth. There is no my truth. There is the truth. Well, I, I do not truth. remember saying that one bit. You, 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 you've said it in passing. You like threw them all together. You go, whether it's, you know, your morals, your values, your truth. And, and it's like, like oh. I almost couldn't, I almost <laughs> couldn't listen to everything else you said because you said your truth. I'm just no, like, dude. Ah. I, I made I made a list and I was reading down my list of like truth and valuables and principles. And- <laughs> <laughs> All right, my bad. All right, all right. So so I had to get that off my chest. Let me now. Let me address what you said. Um, That's too so funny. that what? Yeah, it, it like totally it totally triggered me. That's Brandon's trigger word. That's, yeah. If somebody says my truth or your truth, that is such a trigger for me. Um, okay. So in it's one thing you have to be careful of with like this phenomenon that you just described with everyone wanting to change the world. Um, a lot of that is also is, is seeking uh, false virtue, right? Um, I want to be seen as virtuous. <laughs> they don't want to actually put in the effort of being virtuous. Um, and so it's, it's theater. And so if I act out and say things and then I get recognized as virtuous, whereas in actually being virtuous, you're not looking for, you're not looking for any validation outside of yourself for that virtue. You're being virtuous for the, for the sake of being virtuous because it's in, you're in integrity with your morals. So there's a phenomenon in this world right now where it's, it's theater. It's about 
acting virtuous. It's about playing the role of virtue as opposed to actually being virtuous. And it's because they're seeking that validation. So where are they coming from in that moment? Fear. They're coming from the fear of not being accepted, the fear of not being liked, right? So they act, they, they play a role that is being touted as virtuous, that is recognized, acknowledged, and affirmed as virtuous, but it is not. And so, so there's a disconnect from, with many of these younger, this younger generation, there's a disconnect between actual virtue and being virtuous and playing the role of a virtuous person, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So really there's, there's a line to walk there and clarity that needs to be had where you're, you're, you understand that you're either actually trying to impact the world and create something and inspire something and stand for something, or you're seeking approval and you're coming from fear of not being liked or trying to impress somebody or pretending to be virtuous to get there. So that is a very, that is a good distinction to make because I do see a lot of that around as well. And there is a very stark difference between those playing the game and living the game. Like um, I I always use this phrase, but there's some rapper that um, I forget his name. He came out of jail and wrote an album. And in one of the lines, he was like, you can't just get out on the street and be like a, that that really narrows it down. Well, the context of the the song that he was rapping on was all about how this new younger generation, they're all about like they're shooting people so they can take selfies and post it on the gram. And you know, they're they're always tweeting or Facebooking that, or Instagramming that's, their thug that's life. Self-incrimination. That's self incrimination. That's just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like the the line that I took away from this, the point why I'm bringing up this whole story is that he said, you can't just be out there playing with this. You have to be about that life, homie. And I was like, that's it. You got to be about that life. If you want to be virtuous, you got to be about being virtuous. You can't be out there playing and flirting with it. That's not going to achieve the same results. You got to be about that life. Yeah, it's not even the same results. In fact, what happens is, especially with this current phenomenon, because the... You know, I, 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 I feel that that label, false virtue, is being kind when it comes to what's being pushed as virtue. And this false virtue is actually, remember, we, this whole conversation, we've been talking about absolute morality, right? It's there. It comes through us, to us, through the logos. It is a part of us. We have that absolute morality within us. It manifests as our values and our principles. Now, these false virtues, right? This, this act, the, the quote-unquote virtuous things to say, the quote-unquote virtuous things to do, right? These are actually in direct contradiction to your values, to that absolute morality. 
And what that does is that creates within the individual a cognitive dissonance in that what they're doing, the role they're playing, even though they're being told it's virtuous and everyone on Twitter is like, oh, you're so awesome. You know, it's because it's an actual contradiction to, it's an actual affront to their morality. It's, an, it's immorality, plain and simple. It is the polar opposite of moral, right? And so they, and it's a polar opposite to their values. Whether they recognize their values or not, they're there. Because of that absolute morality, and you may shut yourself off from it. You may disconnect yourself from it. And there are many ways that people do this, right? However, it, does, it doesn't make it go away. It's always there. The logos is always within you. You are a manifestation of the logos. And it puts that absolute morality. It, you, are a part, you are made of that absolute morality. It is a part of you. Just like that absolute truth. You are a manifestation, an expression of that truth. You are a manifestation, an expression of that morality. So those values are there. So even though all your Twitter friends, um, nit twats, I'll call them, even all your nit twats are <laughs> telling you how great you are and wow, you're so woke <laughs> and all that crap, um, there's a contradiction there. And it creates a cognitive dissonance. And that's why you have really most of these people playing virtue are losing their minds. Like they're, 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 on, they're at the level of psychosis, many of them. And those who aren't completely overboard and completely psychotic at this point, they're, they're on the precipice. And they're experiencing high levels of anxiety that probably many of them on – antipsychotics or antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications of some kind because the role they're playing is a complete contradiction to the underlying morality. That Even though all the nat twats are telling them how great they are. Nit twats. Yeah. I guess nit twits. I'll call them nit twits. And it kind of goes with nitwit, nit twits. The All tweetis. your nitwits. <laughs> All right. Cool. Are we there? Are we there yet? There. Awesome. All righty. Thank you, everyone. We will be continuing the conversation in just a moment. I just want to put an ending here to this conversation, um, morality and meaning. I want to thank everyone for your participation and your presence, and I hope to talk to all of you again very soon.